are continuing today in the uh, series that we started last Sunday called Road Trip. And uh, we kicked it off last Sunday with a message called Hit the Road. And then today we're going to uh, move into set to uh, message number two. Really all through the summer, the plan is to be in this series. Uh, really just kind of looking at the parallels between an actual literal road trip and then also our journey with Christ. That when we give our lives to Christ, how we begin a journey with the Lord that begins from that day forward. A lot of parallels there. That's what we're going to be focusing on through the course of this summer specifically. So when, uh, when I was putting together this message, I was thinking along the lines of just some different themes and things that kind of play into the whole road trip mentality. And obviously one of those things is to think about the places that we've traveled, the actual roadways where we've traveled. I, I didn't realize this till this week. There are over 4 million miles of roadway in the U.S. alone, over 48,000 miles of interstate alone. And some of those are kind of iconic. Some of those are somewhat famous. For example, maybe the most famous is Route 66, right, that extends from uh, Chicago all the way down to L.A., 2,400 miles in length. How many of you have ever ridden any portion of Route 66? I'm just, I'm curious. So a lot of you, first service, there were quite a few hands that went up as well. I never have. I've been to Chicago, but never have traveled this particular route at all. There were a lot of businesses and a lot of stops along the way that became famous because of this particular stretch of roadway. You know, it's been mentioned in songs and in television shows and movies and and books, I mean, it really is probably the, maybe the most famous stretch of road in our nation's history specifically. It was opened up uh, in the 1920s. It was fully paved by the end of the 1930s, and it really kind of had its heyday through the 50s and 60s to a large degree, and so maybe the most famous. Now, there's another one that's, that's somewhat equally famous, maybe not as much on this side of the country, but it's called the Pacific Coast Highway, the PCH. Any of you ever ridden that stretch of road specifically, all right? Quite a few of you uh, stretching from L.A. to, uh, the, the or from, no, not L.A. specifically, but from Southern California to Northern California, a little over 600 miles. You got Monterey Bay, Del Sur, a lot of different sites along the way that you're able to see along this section. Now, you're going to think I'm joking with this next slide. The first service, when I put this slide up there, I tossed it up there, people laughed. I don't mean this as a joke, but really, th another one that is maybe not as iconic as the PCH and Route 66 would be right here in our own city, Victory Drive, right? And the reason for that, you may think nothing, especially if you're from here, as I am, you think, what, Victory Drive? Are you kidding me? How is this? Well, it's a part of uh, Highway 80, really, that runs from the West Coast to the East Coast. And, and, and so it's a section of that, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's something to kind of brag about to a degree. But also when, when Highway 80, was, I mean, when uh, Victory Drive was started, I think it was around 1919 or so, it was given the name Victory Avenue, and it kind of combined numerous streets to form Victory Drive. But it was a World War I memorial, which a lot of you may be familiar with, Every palm tree, when it was first built, uh, rec uh, represented the life of a fallen soldier from Chatham County who died in World War One. And many have said through the years that it's the longest avenue of palms in the whole entire country. And uh, so in a lot of ways, it's famous as well. So when you think about road trips, we can take that slide down. When you think about road trips, I mean, you think about the roadways, actually, that we travel as well. And when we get to this series, we talk about not so much roads, but we do talk about the journey that we're on, especially in our relationships with God through our relationship with Jesus. And there, there, again, there are certain parallels that, that, that overlay one another. When we talk about a literal physical road trip with family, there are so many parallels as to how that plays out in our relationship with God. So last Sunday when we looked at Hit the Road, we talked about how there's a definitive starting point in our journey with God. 
there's a definitive starting point. In the same way you back the family vehicle, right, whether it's a minivan or whether it's a station wagon back in the day or an RV, when you back out of that driveway and you, you turn it to the road and, and you hit the road, that's the definitive starting point of your road trip. And in the same way for us in our relationship with God, our relationship with God doesn't start when we go to church. It doesn't start when we get baptized. It doesn't start when we start trying to try harder or do better in our lives. Our relationship with God has a definitive starting point and that starting point is when we lay down our sin the best we can, the Bible calls that repentance, and when we place our faith in Jesus and we decide, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus with my whole life. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to invite him to forgive me and to take over my life. That's the definitive starting point. That's where we hit the road in the journey with God. And not every single person in this room, based on the sheer numbers, not everybody in here perhaps has made that decision, but most of you probably have. And your journey started whether you were eight years old and you prayed and gave your life to Christ, or whether you were an adult in college, or maybe even with family, or or older, that's when the journey starts. And when that journey starts at salvation, here's the thing. This is going to play into what we're looking at today. When we start that journey with Christ, and that journey begins... God is, he, yes, he's concerned about the destination. He has a plan for us to get to heaven. That's certainly a part of it. But it's the journey along the way where he is molding and shaping and changing us. And the whole desire, Romans eight twenty nine, like we saw last Sunday, is for him to, to conform us, mold and shape us into the image of Jesus. And so every blessing that you experience, every trial, every difficulty, every challenge that you face, every experience in your life is something God wants to use to leverage, to mold you into the image of Jesus. That's the journey, right? And so we, we kind of back out of the garage of the old life, we place our faith in Jesus, and then off we go through the remainder of our days, not just waiting till we get to heaven, but we're on journey ultimately with God. So today we're going to add to that, and we're going to look at a second component that you're familiar with from your literal road trips in your life, but also there's a spiritual component, and the title of today's message is simply Travel Partners travel partners. So whenever you went on road trips as a kid, let me just ask this, kind of think through it for a second. Who did you travel, who were your travel partners when you journeyed on those vacations back in the day? For me, it was my mom and dad. It, again, like I said last Sunday, it was my older brother. My two older sisters were kind of grown and gone by the time uh, I got a little bit older. And, and then my cousin, Gary, as well. So it'd be the five of us, and we'd pack it into the station wagon, we'd hit the road, and off we'd go. And we were the travel partners. That, that, that's the way it was. When you think about some of your road trips, you may have family, you you may have kids. You may travel with extended family. It may be all of you slammed into one vehicle, right? You got grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, the dog and the kids, and, you know, cousins and everybody in there. Or it may just be a few friends. Maybe you think about a road trip when you were in college or even now you get some coworkers or some friends and, and you come together and you begin to, to travel and you begin to make your way up the road. Here's the thing. What you learned back then and what you learned today on your road trips has a correlation in our spiritual life as well. And one of the things that we learn from road trips is that principle number one, road trips are designed, they're built for, their aim and their goal is relationship right? Road trips are designed for relationship. And here's the thing, when you would go on those vacations or when you take your family now or when you go off and you road trip with some of your friends today, it's not all about the destination. It is about the journey along the way. It's about building relationships. And when we were kids, we used to get all these, these goofy little games. We, remember Mad Libs? Do any of you remember those where you'd, you know, you'd actually have to talk to people in the car? That doesn't happen as much now because everybody's got their stuff in their ears. Everybody's got their phones going. But you actually had to talk and you like, hey, think of a, a now 
phone that says this or says that, right? You're building relationship, and you're playing I Spy, and you're, you're playing travel bingo. And if you ever have travel bingo back in the day, you get them from like Stuckey's or somewhere, and it, you know, you're, you're trying to get bingo on your card. It's like, I, I need to see a cow in a field you know, because you needed that one. And, and you're just building relationship. You're singing songs. You're telling stories. And I remember when we'd go to Gatlinburg, and, uh, and it'd be the five of us in the car as, when I was a kid. And every time we would go from Gatlinburg to Pigeon Forge, you know that little road? Everybody in America has been on that trip a bazillion times. And you go through a tunnel, and my dad would always hit the horn, honk, honk, in the tunnel. And every time without fail, my mom would say, country, right? And uh, she, that's like trash talk to my dad. And, uh, you know, and it was just all part of the journey. I mean, it was just relationship. And now when we make that trip, nobody in my car calls me country, but I still hit the horn. You got to hit the horn when you're going between Gallenberg and Pigeon Forge in that tunnel. I mean, it's just kind of part of it. But the journey, it's, it's designed for relationship. And a lot of times we miss that as, as Christians because we get this mentality, all right, I prayed that prayer, and then I'm one day going to heaven, and the, biggest, like the big gap in between, we just miss the fact that's a journey that God wants to do something in. And as we make that journey with him through our faith in Christ, we don't travel by ourselves. There are travel partners that go along with us. The road trip is designed for relationship. There's a second principle. I'm going to pull out a few today. And the second principle is this, that in that journey that we have with Christ, God has given you two primary travel partners. That as you journey between that day when you gave your life to Jesus and when you close your eyes and say goodbye to this life and, and wake up in heaven, right, that journey in between, God's given you two, tra- two primary travel partners. One is actually a group of people. It's called other believers, other Christians, or the church, if we want to use that. Not just this church, not just your local church, but other believers. And then the other travel partner is himself. And that's what I want us to focus on some today as we, as we look at what it's like to journey through this life with Christ with others along for the ride. Let's focus first of all on the other believers that God has given us. That, that's, that's one of the primary travel partners God has given you is other Christians. So let, let's start pulling, through, pulling out a few different passages of Scripture and working through some of these. Uh, if you want to turn along with me, you can. I'm going to move a little quickly. We've got them on the screen behind me as well, or you can follow them on our church app if you've got that. But the first passage I want to look at is in Ephesians chapter 1. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. It's a literal group of Christians, right? Uh, real believers, they, they lived in a, in a very godless city, the city of Ephesus. Uh, actually had a temple there to a false goddess that the, nation, or that the city pretty much served. The gospel comes in. Paul kind of plants a church there to some degree. And other believers, they, they begin to grow. They place their faith in Christ. Now Paul, uh, a little bit down the road, is writing them a letter. And notice what he says here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 6. Now, again, we're talking about our journey with Jesus with other believers as our travel partners. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. He says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, we could go a lot of different directions with that verse. We could talk about a number of key words that come out. I want to focus on the ones that I highlighted there, the ones that say adoption as sons. When you think about it, 
The reason I say that God's given us travel partners on this journey with him through our lives is because of a passage like this, that we have been adopted. Anybody who understands adoption understands that it means that you are in the family and that you are in the family together. When someone is adopted, if you have a family with um, children that have been adopted in, or if you were adopted into a family. It's all family, right? It's not two families. It's not a blend. It's family. That's the way it is. That's the way adoption works. And what Paul is saying here, what the Bible tells us, is that for every single person who has given their life to Jesus, right, if we're saved, if we're in that relationship, we are in a relationship of adoption. We're all in the same family, Right? All of us are in that same family. It doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your life experience. If you've come to Christ to have a relationship with God, you are part of that family. You have, we've all been adopted in. Now, it goes a little bit further. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Take a look at what he says here. He, much the same thing, but I just want to see it emphasized in another one of his letters. Galatians 3, verse 26. He says, For you are all sons of God, certainly this would include daughters as well, it's not just talking about the guys, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the picture there, again, there's a starting point, it's faith in Christ, that's what puts us on journey with God, but once we're there, we're all in this thing together. Every single person who has a relationship with Christ, we're all travel buddies, we're all travel partners in this journey ultimately through life. Now it gets a little interesting. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Now there's a passage of scripture here that a lot of you've read before. Honestly, you probably just kind of flew right past it, didn't think much about it because it's a list of names. Uh, but there, there's some stuff beneath the surface here that I want us to focus on a second. Jesus, when he began his public ministry, would call to himself 12 men, 12 disciples. Now, if you've been in church for very long, if you've, if you've read the Bible very much at all, you know exactly who these 12 disciples are. A lot of them, maybe not all of them, you could recite off the top of your head. Some of you, maybe you're kind of new to this, you're just starting to read the Bible, or you're just starting to kind of get into a church and begin to think about all this, what it means to have a relationship with Christ. Just know this, for these names here, these are the 12 that Jesus, when he said it's time for his ministry to begin, he called these 12 men that would become the ones he would pour into more than anybody else on this earth. So you read through it, and it just seems like a list of names. Let's just go ahead and read through. Then I want to pull out a couple of things that I think are worth making mention of. Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 through verse 4. It says, Now the names of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So these are the 12 men that Jesus himself called to his side. 11 of them would remain faithful, not just through that three, three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. They would remain faithful to the end. Most say that all 11 of those faithful ones died a martyr's death. And I would consider John the apostle, right, as dying a martyr's death as well. He was on the Isle of Patmos, exiled for his faith. I would consider that as well. There was one, Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus. And the New Testament would seem to give, I think, ample evidence to show that he never had a relationship with Christ in a salvation way. 
uh, at all regardless, and yet Jesus still called him as one of his disciples. So you look through this list of 12 names, a lot of them we're familiar with. What we don't really think through is some of the diversity that's in that group. For example, there were two sets of brothers there, Peter and Andrew, James and John. There were various backgrounds. You've got... um, You've got, uh, you've got set at least seven who were fishermen. You've got Matthew, who's a tax collector, and you've got Simon the Zealot. What does that mean? We'll get to that in just a second. You've got three who are from the same town of Bethsaida, right? And you've got different views on life, different life experiences, different backgrounds. And what Jesus did was he called these 12 men, knowing who they were, knowing what their background was, he called them to somewhat of an intensive road trip. (laughs) For three or three and a half years, these were going to be the travel partners for his public ministry. So let's pull two of them out real quickly. You see them here, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. If you were saying, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and you opened it up, and you get to Matthew eventually, and you're in chapter 10, you're going to fly right through verse 2 through 4. Right, you're just going to kind of rock right on through it. You're going to gain speed as you go. You're not going to give much thought. But let's just put the, kind of put the slowdown to it. Think about what it means for Matthew as a tax collector. Here's what a tax collector was in the first century in the Jewish culture, at least here. They were considered by their own other Jews, by their own people, to be a sellout to their heritage. And here's why. Because for a Jew to work as a tax collector meant they worked for the Roman government, and the Roman government in the first century were kind of occupying the territory of Israel. The Jews did not look favorably upon the Roman government, and so if you were a Jew and a tax collector working for the Roman government, many of your own people would look down on you. Number one, for that choice to begin with. Number two, doesn't say this about Matthew specifically, but typically it was not uncommon for the tax collectors to kind of get wealthy and pad their pockets by ripping off, if you were a Jew, your own people. So they were not looked at. You didn't invite them to your kid's birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. We're just going to say that, okay? So you got Matthew as a tax collector. Then you've also got Simon the Zealot. Let's bring that back up again if we can. You've got Simon the Zealot. What was a zealot? All right, so the Bible literally includes that as his description, as his name. A zealot was someone on the other end of the spectrum from the tax collector. The zealot was one who was so fiercely opposed as a Jew, so fiercely opposed to Roman rule in the land of Israel that they would have done almost whatever it took to get rid of the Romans whether it be insurrection, whether it be rebellion, right? Again, none of that is literally attached to Simon the Zealot, but we can understand, filling in the blanks, kind of coloring coloring between the lines, that he was probably a part of some of this. After all, he was known as the Zealot. So you've got Matthew the tax collector sell out to the Jewish people, and you've got Simon the Zealot who would have looked at Matthew with anger probably in his eyes. And when Jesus calls his 12 disciples, he makes sure to include both of those guys. And it's like he's saying figuratively, all right, we're going to be on a journey for the next three and a half years. You're all followers of me, and so let's load it up in the minivan, right? Or the Accord, right? Because they were all in one Accord. That's a... That's... I'm sorry. And he says, we're going to journey. And he made sure that he had one from one end of the spectrum and one from the other. With the common bond, don't miss this, the commonality of a shared faith 
in Jesus. And with a common bond of unity, which, listen, doesn't come easily and it doesn't come accidentally. It comes by a lot of work in God's grace. Unity takes work. And they had that shared bond of their surrender to the person of Jesus. And it's painting a huge picture there for us. That even in the people that Jesus called, if you take this little microcosm of a road trip, and he says, we're going to be on this road trip for the next three and a half years in my public ministry, even in that, he painted this picture that people who are different don't have to not get along. There can still be unity there under the common banner of surrender and faith in the person of Jesus. And so these disciples were diverse. They, some of them were family, some of them were not. Some of them came from one town, some came from another. Some were prominent, some were not, right? When you think about some of these guys talk about prominence. I mean, Matthew, I mean, the book of the Bible, right, that he wrote. There, you got Peter, James, and John. Peter would have been instrumental in founding the early church in Acts chapter 2. He would have gone on to be a leader uh, in the early church. First and second Peter written by him. You got James, you got John. I mean, they, these are like high point guys, right? Very prominent in the expansion of the gospel and in the early church in the first century. And then you've got others that Jesus called his disciples in that 12 who were not so well-known. Thaddeus, right? Who knows anything about him necessarily? What about uh, James, uh, the son of Alphaeus, right? Or uh, is literally worded that way, James, the son of Alphaeus. Elsewhere, some of your translations list him as James the Lesser. Boy, that's a great name to have, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine? I can't imagine my parents introducing me as a little as a little kid, right? My older brother, Chip, he's seven years older than me. Again, two older sisters. These are our kids. This is Cass. This is Kinnett. Here's our son, uh, Chip, and here's Brooks the Lesser. <laughs> it's like, hey. <laughs> you know, it only meant younger. That's all it meant. But, I mean, they, there were guys on that list that weren't prominent. And yet they were all travel partners together. From the beginning, they saw Jesus do miracles that most have never seen. They heard Jesus preach messages like nobody had ever heard. They were there, and we can assume that they were there, except for Judas, right? When he was crucified, when he was buried, and when he was resurrected. And he pulled them all together from all these backgrounds, and he said, listen, we're going to journey together, and the component that's going to hold us together is going to be their faith in him. Principle number three, understanding all that, it only reinforces the principle that your Christian life was never intended to be lived out in isolation. Jesus would call these men to himself. They would do life together. He would die he would rise again, he would ascend to the Father in 40 days, and these guys would be instrumental in, uh, tools in the hands of God. To the point to where, to a large degree, I think we, we get to read this book 2,000 years later and even know the gospel because of the influence that they had, because they did it together. The church would be born, you would have believers from all backgrounds, Acts chapter 2, different nationalities who would understand 3,000 in one day, that it doesn't matter where you came from, it doesn't matter how you got there, but when you come to a place where you place your faith in Christ, there's a bond there that is not easily broken. 
And the early church understood that we can't afford to live out our days in isolation from one another. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and our culture has, I, I wouldn't even say drifted. We've just kind of like all out sprinted towards a culture of isolation. COVID only, COVID didn't start that. COVID only intensified it, and it magnified the effects of what it's like to live in isolation. A lot of people struggled in ways that they'd never struggled before during COVID. But it started before that. Our culture is just kind of sprinting towards isolation. I, I remember Susie and I were talking about this the other day um we uh, i think we were out of something like sugar or something and, and and i made the comment i said you know just sort of the proverbial comment that see you know what happened to the days where you could just run across the street and borrow a cup of sugar from your neighbor right that doesn't happen anymore that doesn't happen at all like i mean like, you really got to know your neighbor well and be super close to him because most people aren't going to say hey we need sugar and i'm about to get in the middle of this recipe hey run next door to the neighbor you know, one is we don't even really know our neighbors that well to begin with, but, you know, but the other is we just don't do that kind of stuff. We gravitated more towards a life of isolation. And when you think about it, you know, when we come home from work, we open the door you know, to our garage, and the second thing we do really quickly about 10 seconds later is we close the door. We don't come out again. We don't do a whole lot in the front yards anymore. We do everything in the backyard. You know, it's just it's a culture of isolation. And even in the church itself, I mean, it's become like that. I just, I want to say something that's a little bit, this is very minor, but a little bit of a cage rattle. It's not controversial, but for us to come to a place like this and to gather in a setting like this, I just need to say, this is, this is not helping isolation, right? If we come to a worship service and expect that to help us to be less isolated, it really doesn't help that. Now, it's a necessity, the Bible says, we should be gathering. It says in Hebrews, not to forsake gathering of ourselves together. But I don't know that the understanding in the first century of gathering meant to just simply come uh, and to sit all facing the same direction, right? All, those of you in the back, all you get to see is the back of everybody's heads, right? Uh, I don't think the idea was just to come and, and to occupy a seat, and as soon as it's over, we kind of hit the road and go on and do our own thing. There, there's no real relationship happening right here. I'm talking to you. None of you are able to talk back to me, and if you did, it'd probably kind of freak me out a little bit anyway doing this, right? But there's no relationship here. There's got to be something more. And we work as a church to try to facilitate that. We've got grow, group, grow, uh, grow groups. One day I'll learn what they're called. Grow groups, they meet at 9, they meet at 10.30, right? We do Bible studies, we cart things across the street to build a relationship with folks that live right across the street from us that are our neighbors. We do different things to facilitate relationship. But here's the thing, it's, it takes work to grow in our relationship with one another. I think about, and you, you can relate to this, back when you were traveling on your road trips as a kid, right? There, whenever you would travel, if you had a brother or sister in the back seat with you, and you didn't get the front seat, by the way, it was always stuffed in the back seat, and if you were the, the youngest, you got the middle. You didn't even get the window. You got the middle. Well, if there was any opening at all, there was this invisible line, right, that ran there that was only identified by the phrase, Mom, he's on my side again, Right? It was this invisible line, and, and, and when you think about it, even back then on those road trips, it was like, this is my space, and don't come into it. And it's really sad, because a lot of times that's the way we work out as Christians. So this is my lane. Don't get in my lane unless I ask you to. And when I come around you, still, stay out of my lane, and I'm not going to get in your lane, and we just sort of do life on our own. And we don't do as much life together. Listen, God gave you some travel partners on this journey with him. 
and he, and he demonstrated it when he called his 12 disciples. Did Jesus need those 12 disciples to accomplish the work he would do on the cross and in the empty tomb? He didn't need a one of them. He didn't need the 12 disciples. He didn't call them because he had a gap in his skill set. He demonstrated to us what life looks like. It's designed for relationship. And he's giving you, given you travel partners in your Christian life. Some of them you may be blessed to work with. And you go to work this week and you're going to work with some other believers. That's an awesome blessing. Others of you, you're a missionary there with no other believer at all. Others of you, you've got travel partners in your family. You're married to a travel partner on the journey with Christ. Maybe you're raising some travel partners, kids who are believers as well. right? You've got parents who are travel partners on that journey because they're believers. You've got extended family. You've got people in the church. right? But the picture there is that we're on this journey and we're not on it alone. And we have to take steps to, to move away from isolation and to move towards fellowship. There are over 50 different one another's in the Bible that we read of in the New Testament. Over 50 places where it says do this for one another. Serve one another, love one another, encourage one another. Most of them can't be done in isolation. Most of them, if we isolate, we don't, um, we, we don't involve our lives and lives of one another, those one another's are going to go undone. The picture of the Christian life is that we're traveling together. I read a story this week over uh, or, or about a woman who had, who had made a trip as a journalist. She's from New Zealand. Her name's Claire Nelson. And um, she was in the U.S. She was stateside. She was somewhat of a hiker, adventurer. Again, New Zealand journalist here. She was out in Southern California at Joshua Tree National Park. And she had gone out to do some hiking. She had done it before, but she, on this occasion, she did not share with anyone what her itinerary or what her plans were. And she would later say, I knew that was a mistake. She goes out for her hike, and on this particular hike, just a little bit into it, she, uh, she falls. She slips and falls down a ravine 15-plus feet, shatters her pelvis. She's in a little clearing, barely bigger than she is, She's got very little water. She's got very little food because this was just a day hike, and she has no cell service. And she began to go between periods of panic and adrenaline, fear, as everything ran through her mind. This is actually a, a still shot from one of the videos that she recorded. There are a few others as well. There were rattlesnakes in that area. There were coyotes in that area, oppressive heat. And she began to take videos of herself because she knew if I'm never found here, I want my family to have something. Four days later, she was found. She was alive. She was rescued. She was taken out. She was taken to the hospital, treated, obviously recuperated, recovered from that. But it was interesting what struck me in the article were a couple of the quotes that she had. I don't have these on the screen. I'm just going to read these to you. But listen to what she says. I think there's such carryover to us spiritually when we think about journeying with other travel partners. She said, people would describe me as independent. I'm very stubbornly determined to just rely on myself, which I think is actually, in hindsight, a very dangerous kind of mindset to get locked into. What saved me was other people. I don't know how resilient we can be on our own forever. 
Later in that article, she talks about how prior to her fall, she would post often on social media, and she used this word. She, would, she was pretending to connect with people. She comments on that. She says, but I really wasn't. I really wish that I hadn't put up so many walls around me to try and keep people out and just be that self-reliant person all the time. I realized it had just left me as this isolated island, and no man is an island. God has given you a travel partner in your journey with Christ. He's given you two. One is actually a group. It's called Other Believers. And the second, as we close, is himself. He travels with you, specifically through the person of the Holy Spirit. God is one God. He's revealed himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When you prayed and gave your life to Jesus, Jesus did not take residence in your body physically. Right? The physical Jesus that we read of in the New Testament did not literally, you know this, take residence in your body. If you're 5'9 and he was 6'2, that would be problematic, right? <laughs> but God did take residence in your body through his spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us about this in numerous passages of Scripture. One of those, again, is back in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at what it says in verse 13 and verse 14. It says, In him, Jesus, you also, after listening to the, to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's really interesting there because it talks about how our journey started through our faith in Christ. There was a time when we believe, we place our faith in Christ. One day we're going to get our inheritance. That's a day yet to come. For now, we journey through this journey with Christ. We don't journey alone. God is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write to the church in the city of Rome, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. He says something similar. Look at what he says here, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so the Spirit gives us strength. He's our helper. You go to John 14. Jesus himself is speaking here. John 14, verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Right? That's how he describes the Holy Spirit, another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And if that wasn't strong enough, look at what he says in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Such a powerful description of what God promises to us, that as we place our faith in Jesus and we begin our journey with Christ, and on that journey on this earth, as we navigate some tough terrain, we're going to have times where we're waiting on God and it seems like the fog has rolled in. There are going to be times of discouragement. There are going to be times of trial and challenge. There are going to be times of extreme difficulty. We're going to make some wrong turns along the way. And what God tells us is, on that journey, you don't travel alone. You've got me, my presence, my spirit within you. Never can you say I'm ever by myself, no matter what I go through. And I'm also going to give you in flesh and blood where you can see other travelers with you that are packed into that, to that car you're traveling in on this journey with Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves as we summarize it and as we close it up on the journey that we have through Christ, this design for relationship, that the goal is to help mold and shape and transform us 
Are you traveling more alone in isolation or are you traveling along with the others that God has given you? And what is it that you can do even this week to facilitate a closer journey with the people that God's put into the vehicle with you? Not in the back seat with your earbuds in, zoning everybody out. But what can I do to press in closer to my fellow travelers? Knowing that, number one, I'm probably going to benefit by what they add. And number two, there's somebody else that can benefit from what I bring to the table. And then lastly, what am I doing to develop my relationship with God so that my journey with Him can be one that I enjoy, one that's fruitful, one that's fulfilling, and one that helps to bring others along for the ride? What can I do to press in closer to spend time in His Word, to worship, to spend time in prayer, and to share the gospel with people around me? Listen, we're all on a journey. I know we're not all the same, right? And there are complications that go with it. I know that some people on that journey with you, they didn't vote for the same guy you voted for, right? They don't cheer for the same team you cheered for. They, they don't like the same stuff you do. They're not like you. They may be exactly the opposite of you, but listen, if they've given their life to Christ, we're all on the ride together. And so we guard the unity. We pour into one another. We don't focus on what's different. We focus on the common bond we have through Jesus, our faith, and a life surrendered to him. And we praise him when he blesses us along the way. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Maybe for some of you, you know, you hear all this and you think, boy, that sounds like a ride I want to be a part of. But you know you've never given your life to Jesus to start with. You know, if you've never given your life to Christ, it doesn't start by coming back to church again. It doesn't start by doing better. A relationship with God starts when you lay down your sin and invite Jesus, who died and rose to pay for it, to come in and forgive you and take over. He'll do that right here, right now, if you ask him. It's the biggest transaction you'll ever make, bigger than any other. It's the surrender of your life from your control to his, saying, Jesus, I need you because of my sin. I believe in you that you're God. And I invite you to forgive me and save me. And he'll do it. And if you've made that decision already, and let's enjoy that ride together with some of the wrong turns that come and the bumps and the bruises. And sometimes it may feel like we've broken down, lost a wheel. <laughs> you know what? But he's always good and he's always faithful. And so God, thank you for this journey. You didn't take us straight to heaven when we gave our lives to Christ for a reason. I think part of that is to develop a relationship of faith on this side and to give us time to invite others along the journey as well. And so help us to be faithful in both of those, God, to enjoy you, the people that you've put on this journey with us. Help us to live a life of surrender to you, to your spirit. And may we be diligent to share the gospel with people who need you. They're on a journey that's not going to end well. And they need a Savior. Give us the boldness to tell them about it. And so, God, we thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.